Let me introduce our, our guest speaker. I'm sure that some of you have heard of him or have seen him on YouTube or something like that. His name is Scott Klusendorf. He's the founder of and president of an institution, an organization called Life Training Institute. It was established in 2004, and, it, and the whole purpose of it is to challenge and to equip pro-life advocates to persuasively defend their views. Scott has been in debates on college campuses, numerous college debates, including campuses such as Stanford, Berkeley, UCLA, University of Southern California, John Hopkins, MIT. Uh, he has published two books on this issue, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture, and that was in 2009, is that right, Scott? And then a few years later, one more aimed at Students Stand for Life, A Student's Guide for Making the Case and saving lives. He's also written uh, a number of articles in peer-reviewed journals, uh, particularly the Christian Research Journal. And so it really is a privilege to have Scott. That, that is exactly what he's going to do today, is to equip us, to train us, to have conversations about pro-life um, and, and protecting babies in the womb uh, and help you to do that, help us to do that winsomely. In about three seconds, I'm going to have you stare around the room and look at some people. Don't do it yet, but I'm going to have you do it. Uh, guys, if there's a cute girl here you've been dying to make eye contact with all semester, this will be your God-ordained moment to do it. <laughs> Ladies, you get the same pickings, okay? Yeah, yeah, it, it's totally sanctified, well, all right? And by the way, do not laugh. I met my wife that way. So 33 years, okay, this can work. So ready? One, two, three, stare. Start looking. Do not look at me, all right? Stare around the room. All right. By the way, I expect full credit for any dates that happen this weekend, okay? I just do. That pro-life guy came and man, we, we found ourselves a, a, a lifelong mate here. This is great. All right. Question, as you were staring at each other, what makes us equal? Do we live in a culture obsessed with equality? Yeah. We live in a culture that wants marital equality. You can marry your canary if you want to. They want social equality. They want income equality. They want everything equal. And yet, what makes us equal in the first place? Are we all physically equal in this room today? No, we're not. In fact, last year, at age 57, I did something my wife considered suicidal. I went back to the high school where I played on the basketball team in high school, and I played on the alumni team against the current student team. You're laughing. We beat them by 24 points. All you, hey, listen, by the way, all of you, that if you ever go back to your schools to play on the alumni, I'm going to tell you how to beat these guys. What is the problem with every single young high school young Turk out there? What is it they do in basketball all the time? They're selfish. They want to be a highlight reel. They're shooting the three-pointers. All us old guys plugged the middle, forced them to take really bad shots, and slowed the pace down to molasses, and we crushed them. <laughs> now, yours truly, we also had some help from some recent grads who had fresh legs. That did help. <laughs> yours truly took one shot, a three-pointer, and I drained it. Nothing but net. And I had a rebound and two assists. You're going, that's nothing, man. You're right, it's nothing. But when you're 57, you have one objective for a game like that, avoid hospitalization. And I did so. Now, 
If I had to play one-on-one -on -one with probably anybody here today, I'd lose. Because although I still have the shot, I don't have the speed and agility anymore. 58, you feel it. Some of you in this room have incredible physical ability. But if Planned Parenthood is right, that we can destroy human fetuses because they're not physically developed yet, and you have more development than I do, if development is what grounds our identity and value as human beings, those of you with more of it have a greater right to life than those with less. You can throw human equality on the ash heap. Are we all equally self-aware right now? How many of you had coffee this morning? By the way, coffee is proof God has not utterly forsaken us. <laughs> I'm an agnostic before my second cup in the morning, so don't feel bad if that's you. <laughs> Chapel speaker, agnostic, film at 11. Uh, Self-awareness, we're not all equally self-aware in this room right now. Some of you are really firing on all the synapses right now. Others of you, it's like, whoa, uh, this is tough. Let's hope we can avoid this high above comatose. Yeah, I get that. But if Peter Singer is right, that neither the fetus nor the newborn is self-aware so you can destroy both, if he's right that self-awareness is what gives us our value and you have more of it than me, then you have a greater right to life than me. We as Christians actually have a better answer to the equality issue. The secular culture has no coherent answer to the question, what makes us equal? Because they ground it in our functions that none of us share equally. We're all more or less physically developed, more or less self-aware, more or less able to feel pain, more or, less, more or less conscious of our environments. We don't match up. There is one thing we share in common, though, as you were staring around the room at each other. We all have the same human nature. Now, what's a human nature? A human nature is the thing that makes you human and not some other living thing. Dogs have a dog nature. Cats, I have learned, have a satanic nature. <laughs> you have a human nature. We all have it. It's what makes us the kind of thing we are. And as Christians, we know that our human nature bears the image of our maker. We have what we call intrinsic dignity. Now, I want you to imagine a beach bum and a university scholar. They have equal intrinsic dignity. They do not have equal attributed dignity. The beach bum is wasting his life. The scholar is investing his but they do have identical intrinsic dignity. And men and women, when you leave this Bible college, you are stepping into a world that doesn't know why we're equal, doesn't know why we're valuable, doesn't know the difference between intrinsic dignity and attributed dignity. And in that kind of world, you're going to be asked to be a witness for Christ on the issue of abortion in a culture that doesn't even know what equality means. So how do we do that? I'm going to give you three things today that will help you do it. You're not going to leave here today with all the answers on the pro-life issue. You're not going to leave here knowing how to answer every objection someone throws at you. By the way, spend any time with someone doing apologetics that knows their stuff. They'll tell you right away that's not what it means to engage the culture around us. Oftentimes, arguments are won much later than the conversation that transpires. How many of you have ever been in an argument with your parents or significant other and they make a really good point that runs contrary to your own? And 
You know what you do, right? Every time you slap yourself on the knee and say, I am so glad the Lord Jesus put you in my life to straighten out my twisted thinking so I could think more clearly. Is that what you do? Is that how your home life was growing up? No, it wasn't. I'll tell you what it was like. Mom and dad had an argument. There would be some real quiet, passive aggressive space in the house for about two or three days. And then things would just kind of pan out, right? That's, that's how we all are. None of us likes being told we're wrong. So here's your job. Your job is not to have the answer to everything. You know what your job is? What my friend Greg Kolkel says, you're gonna put a pebble in their shoe. Ever had a pebble in your shoe when you're out hiking? Give them something to think about. Here are three questions on the pro-life issue that will help you put that pebble in their shoe get them thinking right about human dignity and human value and put you in the driver's seat for engaging them in a persuasive and winsome manner on the issue of abortion. Here are the three questions we're going to look at. What is the unborn? And I'll explain why that's critical. Secondly, what makes us valuable? What makes us valuable? And thirdly, what's the point? And the good news is if you get those three questions down, you can make a difference where God has placed you. Let's take that first one, what is the unborn? How many of you have read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? Okay, good. You may recall in chapter 32, there's this exchange that takes place between Aunt Sally and Huck Finn. And it's remarkable. In fact, it's stunning. It's jaw-dropping. Pardon me, I go to spetch therapy after this. Um, <laughs> jet lag, don't ask me where I'm at. Um, in chapter 32, Huck has been away on an adventure. He happens on the property of Aunt Sally. Aunt Sally sees him coming. She thinks it's Tom Sawyer. She's mixed up. She rushes out to meet the boy. Where have you been? We've been waiting for you. Where have you been? And Huck makes up a lie. Well, ma'am, we were on a steamboat and, 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 and it blew a cylinder head. My gosh, said Aunt Sally, was anybody hurt? No, ma'am, it killed a Negro, but nobody got hurt. Well, that's good, said Aunt Sally, because sometimes people do get hurt. What was just assumed about the black man? That he wasn't one of us. It wasn't argued for. It was simply assumed. No argument advanced, no case presented, simply assumed he was not one of us. C.S. Lewis said the most dangerous ideas in our culture are those that are simply assumed to be true, not those that are actually spelled out. So let me tell you what I think Lewis would say to us today if he were alive. He would look at us as Christians and say, Richard Dawkins isn't your biggest problem. Daniel Dennett isn't your biggest problem. Sam Harris isn't your biggest problem. You know what your biggest problem is? Ideas the culture assumes to be true that are never spelled out and argued for. And on the issue of abortion, boy, do we see this to be the case. Five years ago, on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court case that gave us abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. In that 1973 Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton, said the state may only restrict third trimester abortions if they don't interfere with the woman's health. And then it went on to define so, health so broadly you can drive a Mack truck through it. Abortion's legal for all practical purposes through all nine months of pregnancy in this country. Thinking back on that 1973 decision five years ago, the then President of the United States said this, 
Today is a day that all Americans should celebrate. Oh, why is that, Mr. President? Listen to his words. I'll quote them word for word. Quote, because this is a nation where everyone gets to pursue their own dreams. End quote. What was just assumed about the unborn? Mr. President, does, quote, everyone include the unborn? He just assumed they weren't human. He didn't argue for it. He presented no evidence for it. He simply assumed it. And men and women, we are part of a culture that is intellectually lazy. They want to answer the question, can we kill the unborn, without ever answering the question, what is the unborn? And to show you how foolhardy this is, I want you to take a journey with me 10 years into the future. You have now met the man or woman of your dreams, probably somebody you just looked at a few moments ago, maybe. Maybe not. You are married, you have a five-year-old boy, and you're standing at the kitchen sink washing dishes after supper, and that five-year-old comes in behind you with your back turned and says to you, Daddy or Mommy, can I kill this? You, you aren't surprised that little boys do that, are you? Some of you ladies are looking, no, cute little boys would never do that. Uh, yes, they will. We have four children. We have a son, 28. He's married. Son, 27. Son, 22. And a daughter, 18. I have personally heard the question, Daddy, can I kill this more times than I can count, almost always with his hands around his brother's throat. Now, <laughs> what's going to be the first question out of your mouth when you hear that little voice say that? What has he got? Cockroach, snail, do whatever you want. Don't show your mother. Neighbor, kitty, whoa. <laughs> Brother by the throat, we have issues. Call the pastor, right? You would never in a million years say, sure, son, have at it, till you answered the predicate question, what has he got? Know what we just did? We just solved the abortion issue. That's right. We just solved it. Can we kill the unborn? Yes. Yes. If, if what? If the unborn are not human. If abortion morally is no different than pulling a tooth, I don't care a straw how many you have. But we got to answer the question, what is the unborn, before we answer the question, can we kill the unborn? And that is precisely the question the culture doesn't want to ask. Think about it for a moment. Think about the street-level justifications for abortion. Forget the academic guys for a moment. Think about just what you hear in the media. Why don't you trust women to make their own personal decisions? Let's just take that one for a moment. Would anybody argue that way if we were talking about killing four-year-olds? Never in a million years. So why do they talk that way about the fetus but not the four-year-old? I'll tell you why. Because they assume the unborn are not human, like that four-year-old. Nobody would ever say choice and who decides if we were talking about killing teenagers. Well, maybe some would, but you get the idea. They only argue that way about killing their unborn offspring. Why? Because they're assuming the unborn are not human. They haven't argued for it. None of these slogans make a case that the unborn aren't human. They're just stated. It assumes the unborn are not human. How about this one? Women have a right to privacy. I like privacy when I'm getting ready in the morning. It's quite nice. I trust you do too. However, would anybody argue that we can kill a two-year-old as long as we do it in the privacy of the bedroom? Never. Privacy isn't the issue. Choice in who decides isn't the issue. 
Trusting women isn't the issue. There's one issue we got to talk about. What is the unborn? We've got to answer that question. So I'm going to answer it. And you might be shocked how I'm going to answer it. Because even at a Bible college, Danny, cover your ears while I say this, we're not going to go to the Bible to answer the question, what is the unborn? It's the wrong place to go. If you're at home tonight, you see out in the backyard after dark some four-legged critter running across your backyard, do you go to scripture or biology to figure out what it is? You go to biology. So what is the unborn? We're asking an empirical question. From the earliest stages of development, here's your answer, summarizing hundreds of embryology textbooks. From the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. That's right, from the one cell stage. Everybody hold your hand up like this for a moment. Pinch cells off the back of your hand. Give yourself a really good pinch. Congratulations. You, sir, just sent a couple of hundred somatic cells hurling to their deaths on the shorts in front of you. By the way, how do you wear shorts in this weather? <laughs> I, I mean, how does that work? Enlighten me. Uh, do you have dragon blood or what is it? Uh, <laughs> hellfire sermons don't scare me. Learning I'd spend eternity in Fort Wayne in February, that, that scares me, okay? Now, these cells that you just sent hurling to your deaths on the lap in front of you, I have bad news for you. Every one of them contains your DNA encoding. Did you just commit mass homicide? No, you didn't. And you know why. These cells on the back of your hand are merely part of a larger human being, you. They are not distinct whole human beings the way you were when you were an embryo, the way I was when I was an embryo. There's a difference in kind between each of our bodily cells and the embryonic human beings we once were. That's the science of embryology. Why is this difficult for people? Well, let me give you one reason why it's difficult, then I'll give you a silly reason why it's difficult. One reason why I can legitimately understand why they don't get this. Do our intuitions, if we're honest, I mean, let's think about it for a moment. Do our intuitions looking at a two-celled zygote go the same way they do when we look at a cute new newborn, yes or no? No, they don't. We look at that two-cell, I mean, we don't go, boy, isn't she cute like my cousin Abigail? No, we don't do that. We, we don't immediately connect. But sometimes our intuitions are wrong, men and women. I want you to imagine, to borrow an example from Richard Stith, that it is 1970. Now, for those of you that don't know it, we actually had a time in history when we did not take pictures with our phones. We had these things called cameras. They had lenses on them. The lens would open up, the light would come in, record the image on film. After you shot 36 exposures, you shot or you took the film out of the camera very carefully, put it in a little yellow canister or a little gray canister. Then you drove to the far corner of the neighborhood supermarket where there was a little booth called Photomat. You would drop your pictures off. You would wait a month and a half for them to come back, half of them overexposed. That's how it was back in the dark days when we suffered for the kingdom. But the Polaroid camera changed that in the late 50s, early 60s. How many of you have Polaroid cameras now? They're really cool looking. The original ones look like something Satan designed. They were not pretty. However, they had an advantage. You shot your picture. It spit out the piece of paper. You'd shake it. Some of you 
folks my age group, you're doing the muscle memory thing right there. Yeah, uh, you'd shake it and your picture would emerge in front of you. I want you to pretend it's 1970. We're going back in time. You have a Polaroid camera. You are on a Mexican safari. You just shot a picture of a black jaguar leaping across the trail in front of us. Nobody films black jaguars, but you got it. And while you're waiting for that picture to emerge, you're breathless with excitement. National Geographic is going to pay you huge bucks for this. I come up behind you. I yank your Polaroid camera out of your hand. I yank the film out of it, and I tear up your picture. Are you mad at me? You're going to kill me even if I am pro, even if you are pro-life, right? Yeah, you're, you're not going to be happy. What if I said to you, what's the big deal? There's no jaguar there. That was just a white paper with brown smudge on it. You'd get even angrier, and you'd say, are you crazy? The jaguar in the picture was already there. We just couldn't see him because he was still developing. In the same way, men and women, you were already there from the one cell stage. We just couldn't see you because you were still developing. That's the science of embryology. Now, some people respond to this, and quite honestly, they're, they're so intellectually disingenuous, I'm tempted to just let it go. But since it was wildly popular, I'm going to go ahead and take up what comedian Chris Tomlinson threw out there last fall. Tomlinson said, I've come up with a knockdown argument no pro-lifer can answer. No one will ever answer this. By the way, whenever you're in the presence of a comedian who tells you he's come up with a serious philosophic argument that nobody has ever been able to answer, know right away you are not in the presence of an extraordinary mind. <laughs> Here is his thought experiment that, by the way, isn't his. He actually stole it from four other thinkers who thought it up before him, but he's crediting himself for this. He says, imagine, pro-lifer, you are in a burning fertility clinic. It's an inferno. In this corner over here is a six-year-old girl. In that corner over there is a vial full of frozen embryos, a thousand of them. You don't have time to save both. You can save the thousand embryos or the six-year-old girl. Which one are you going to save? Where are we all going? We're going to save the six-year-old. Tomlinson says, Tomlinson says, see, even you don't believe your own rhetoric. Because if you did, you would save the embryos or at least consider saving them, but you don't. There goes your whole case. Question. How does it follow that if I save one human over others, that the ones left behind are not fully human? Suppose this building's on fire. It's an inferno. I can save all of you or my daughter, Emily Rose. Who is going to get warm? All of you. I won't shoot you on the way out, but I will save her first because I'm her dad. And you will do the same for your kids, as you should. The fact that I save her over you, though, does not question your humanity. And by the way, his whole thought experiment is flawed from the beginning. It's about who we ought to save, not who we can intentionally kill. Abortion is about who do we get to intentionally kill. His thought experiment is about who we should save. You see the problem with it right away? By the way, will the, the Secret Service take a bullet for the president? Will it take one for you? No. Does it follow the president's more human than you because the Secret Service protects him but not you? This is silly. Let's change his thought experiment around even more. 
Suppose you're in an oncology ward in a hospital. You can save the 1,000 embryos or 100 terminally Ill, Ill patients who will be dead within five hours from their cancer. Which are you going to save then? Well, I think our intuitions now start going to the embryos, right? So the whole thought experiment falls apart when you stop to think about it. And yet there are millions of Americans who have bought the notion that when it comes to abortion, we've got nothing to work with except our own personal preferences. How are we going to reach those people? Answer, we give them a chance to view what's at stake in abortion. How many of you saw The Passion of the Christ? Saving Private Ryan? Schindler's List? Hacksaw Ridge? By the way, I met Desmond Doss when I was 11, but that's another story. The same is true with abortion. The reason why you were shown those films, if you saw them when you were younger, or you went to see them now that you're on your own, I'll tell you why I think you went to see them. You realize that those films, though they're graphic and horrific to look at, conveyed truths that no words could ever convey. And the same is true with abortion. There are millions of Americans who will see it as a mere preference issue until they see it. In just a moment, I'm going to roll for you a 55-second clip. You don't have to watch it. As a courtesy to you, we've taken the narration out of the clip so that if you look away during the 55 seconds, which I invite any of you to do, you won't even hear anything you don't want to hear. There'll be no descriptions of what's on the screen. If you watch, you'll hear inst instrumental music, and you'll see three image sequences. First trimester abortion, second trimester abortion, and third trimester abortion. It's gruesome to look at. Be warned. I want to say one other thing, and please hear me. I'm not here today to beat up on people who may have had an experience with abortion, and I'm going to tell you why. It's because I believe in the gospel of Jesus. And that gospel, men and women, I don't care if you're at a Bible college or not. It doesn't matter. We need to preach it to ourselves every single day till we drop. Because that gospel says that a good God creates a world for us to worship and enjoy Him, we rebel against our Creator, and God, think about this for a moment, who would have been just if He saved no one, sends Jesus not as just a mere example of love. Do not, do not believe any theory of the atonement that tells you that. No, you know what Jesus did? He bears in full the judgment you and I deserve for our rebellion against God. Jesus stands in our place condemned. That's why all the great hymn writers speak of the atonement in that language about Jesus standing in our place, condemned. And then God proves that the sacrifice Christ made on our behalf was sufficient because Jesus is raised from the dead. You know what I call that? Really good news for rebels like me, who's got a rap sheet a mile long just from this week. But the news gets better for those that Trust in Jesus for salvation. God the Father adopts them into His family as dearly loved children. So if you're here today and you've had an experience with abortion, a guy who encouraged a girl to abort or a girl who made that choice because you didn't think you had another way out, the great news of the Christian gospel is that Jesus was your substitute. He took the judgment you deserved. And that means you don't need an excuse. You need an exchange. You need His righteousness for your sinfulness. That's the gospel. Let's keep that good news in mind as we take a minute to watch this clip, and then I'll wrap up with two other points before uh, we end our time together. So at this point, we'll go ahead and roll this brief clip. You feel freedom to look away if you wish.
Some of you might look at this and think, goodness, do we need to show it something like this to a culture out there? And if, if you're taken back by these images, join the club. I don't like them either. But I will tell you something. I challenge you to point to one social reform campaign in the 20th century that was successful without images. And I'll give you a heads up, you won't find one. In 1955, an African-American boy, Emmett Till Jr., 14 years of age, journeyed from Chicago where he was living to visit his cousin in the town of Money, Mississippi. He gets off the train in 1955, begins to brag to his cousin and his cousin's friends about his two white girlfriends back home. The cousin and the friends say, no way, we don't believe you. We don't even speak to white girls down here, let alone make eye contact and date them. And when he persisted on bragging about his two white girlfriends, they dared him to talk to a white girl down there in Money, Mississippi. Well, that afternoon, Emmett, the boys, the cousin, about eight of them go into Brian's grocery store in downtown Money, Mississippi. Emmett purchases a piece of gum from the white married woman behind the counter. She's 21. He walks up to the counter innocently but flirtatiously, flashes her a big smile, buys the gum, and the reports vary. He either whistled or said, thanks, babe. We're not quite sure which. But either way, pretty innocent stuff by our standards today. And left. That was it. Didn't harass her. Didn't do anything more. Two nights later, that boy is taken at gunpoint from his uncle's home at 1 o'clock in the morning by the woman's husband and another man. They drive him outside Money, Mississippi. They savagely beat him, break every bone in his upper torso, and finally finish him with a shot to the head. They throw his lifeless corpse into the river, where a local sheriff discovers it presumably two to three days later. He cannot believe the sight of this kid. He takes what's left of Emmett, this gruesome discovery, puts what is left of Emmett, not even in a coffin, just a wooden box, seals it with a note to Mamie Till, Emmett's mother, which reads, this box is to remain sealed by order of the sheriff. When the body arrives back in Chicago, the newspaper staff in Chicago gathers around Mamie Till and says, what are you going to do? This was now a national story. And she shocked the world with her answer. She said, we're going to have a funeral for my son, and it's going to be an open casket funeral. The press went crazy berserk. You can't do that. Do you understand the condition your boy is in? Do you understand how this will offend people? Yeah. But I want the whole world to see what they did to my boy. And that black and white image of Emmett Till, which you can Google, be warned, that black and white image was published nationally in Jet Magazine, and it launched the civil rights movement in this country. Three months later, Rosa Parks is told to go to the back of the bus because she's black. What gave her the courage to stand her ground and do the right thing? She told us in her memoirs, I couldn't get the picture of that boy out of my head. What boy? Emmett. Why do I hope that as you take your positions of ministry leadership, that you will expose your people lovingly but truthfully to images like this? Because I'm convinced if pro-life Christians do not lovingly but truthfully open the casket on abortion, this nation will continue to tolerate injustice it never has to look at. But men and women hear me. At the same time we open that casket, 
We open the truth of God's word that sinners can be reconciled to their creator because someone stood in their place condemned. We offer truth and we offer hope. We do not serve our people as ministry leaders when we sweep abortion under the rug. We don't spare them guilt. You know what we spare them? Healing. Because unconfessed sin has them out of full fellowship with Jesus. The kindest thing we can do as Christian leaders is lead people gently to repentance so they find the healing they so desperately need. That's our job as leaders. Last two questions, and I'll wrap these up very quickly. Need to answer the question, what makes us valuable? What is the unborn? We answered it. Distinct, living, whole human being. What is abortion? The intentional killing of an innocent human being. What makes us valuable? There's four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that's here today. Not one of them is a good reason for saying we could kill you then, but not now. There's a difference of size, level of development, environment, meaning where we're located, and degree of dependency. Think of the acronym SLED. That's pretty easy to do here in Bozeman, where it's already snowing in early October. How do you people handle this up here? I tell you. Well, let's look at those four differences and we'll see they don't become good reasons for saying you had no value then, but you do now. Size, you were smaller as an embryo. So? By the way, become adept at using that word. So? Why does body size determine value? Men are generally larger than women. Do men deserve more rights than women simply because they're larger? If you're a guy and you're shaking your head this way, I now know why you will never get married. <laughs> what about your level of development? You were less developed as an embryo. So, little parenthetical sermon here. Christians, let's get out of the habit of assuming the burden of proof every time a critic raises an objection. If they're going to say that self-awareness is what gives us value, who has the burden of proof, me or them? They do. They made the claim. If I claim there's a pink elephant swinging right there above Danny's head, a couple of you look, that was the right thing to do. <laughs> who has the burden of proof? I do. I made the claim. If they're going to claim that a human being can be intentionally killed because he's not developed, they need to argue for that. It's not on you to prove the fetus can think abstract thoughts. It doesn't have to. Make them argue why that's the justification for killing somebody. Abraham Lincoln did this on the issue of slavery. Lincoln's critics would say that slave differs from us. He's not the same color we are. He's not mentally as alert as we are. And you know what Lincoln's answer was? So? I'll quote Lincoln word for word. When Lincoln's critics would bring up that the slave differed from us, Lincoln would say, does he differ from us in ways that justify enslaving him? And here's Lincoln's quote. Quote, you say man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it is skin color then? The fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man? Take care, by that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it's not skin color? It's a matter of intellect? The white man you wrongly allege has superior intellect to the dark man? Take care again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to yours. You say it is not skin color, it is not intellect, it's a matter of interest. The white man has it in his interest to enslave the dark man. Take care yet again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet who can make it his interest to enslave you." End quote. What did Lincoln just do? The same thing you need to do. The same arguments that, used, that were used to disqualify the, the black man worked equally well for whites. 
Peter Singer, the Princeton ethicist that many of you have heard of, has horrific conclusions in his writings. Peter Singer argues that no newborn should be considered a person until 30 days after birth, and disabled infants can be intentionally killed on the spot if it suits the preferences of the parents. You know what I like about Singer? He's consistent. Singer says, fetus, not self-aware. Newborn, not self-aware. You can kill both. You know what Planned Parenthood tries to do? You can kill the unborn, but the minute it makes a magical journey down the birth canal, hands off. Singer says, Planned Parenthood, you're intellectually dishonest. Size, level of development. What about environment where you're located? How many of you traveled at least 700 miles to come to college here? Oh, a lot of you. Okay. If a journey of 700 miles didn't change you from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to valuable human being we can't? Answer, if you weren't already human and valuable, a change in address isn't going to get it done. Finally, degree of dependency. Yes, you depended on your mother for survival, but since when does dependency on another human being mean that we can kill you? I live in Noonan, Georgia. You've never heard of it. You have. <laughs> I'm impressed. Your personhood level just went up. <laughs> I now know what makes us human. <laughs> Preach it, sister. Well, it is now. Because Noonan, Georgia is one of the prime filming spots for the Walking Dead series. For those of you that are, any Walking Dead fans here? Um, it jumped the shark in season seven, but that aside. Uh, by the way, you can still be saved and watch The Walking Dead. Talk to me afterward, I'll tell you how. Now. <laughs> For those of you that haven't seen it, don't do a family church viewing night on The Walking Dead. It's pretty gory, all right? But the hero of the series, it's a zombie series. It's not satanic. It's a virus. Um, hero is Rick Grimes. He's a sheriff. He gets shot in season one. And uh, while he's in the hospital for a month recovering in a coma, the zombie apocalypse breaks out. And he wakes up from the coma, and he's all alone. Thankfully, the walkers missed him when they came through the hospital, the zombies. But all the physicians abandoned him. He wakes up, he's all alone, and season one of The Walking Dead is he has to figure out what happened to my family, what happened to my son and wife. That's season one of The Walking Dead. Now, let's change that script. One doctor stays behind to care for Rick. Rick depends totally on him for survival. Can that doctor intentionally kill Rick because Rick depends totally on him for survival? Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, those four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. I end with this. What's the point? The point is to love your unborn neighbor. And I'm going to give you one thing to do today. Actually, two things to do that. First thing, if you're not signed up to help with Zoe Care, the pregnancy center here in town that reaches out to women, I would encourage you to volunteer your time and effort and support their work because they're reaching out to women who are facing difficult decisions and they love on them and they help them and they care for them. And I hope you'll do that. And uh, Danny can put you in touch with them if you, if you want to do that. Secondly, all of us are apologists now. You cannot leave the defense of the unborn just to those who are the full-time pros. We all got to step up and do our duty. So how many of you at holiday, Thanksgiving or Christmas, have relatives who would come to your home who are not Christian, who do not share your worldview, yet they're around your table? Any of you beside me that have that? Yeah. 
This is very common. I mean, our, our family, we have got a flaming left-wing feminist on my wife's side of the family. Uh, and I'll tell you what, we have learned how to get along and you'll, you'll have to do that. But I want you to pretend that you have an Aunt Betty. She's from Boston. She thinks you're crazy that you're religious. She thinks it's really nuts that you're pro-life. And as she's biting her turkey, she looks at you and says, now why are you pro-life? Here's what you're going to say to her and it will take you less than a minute to say it. You, you'll get it done in under a minute. Here's what you're gonna say. Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology says, Aunt Betty, from the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family even though you had yet to grow and mature. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Now, I got that done in under a minute. How many Bible verses did I cite? Zero. Did I communicate biblical truth? Yes. That's your job, men and women. Put a pebble in their shoe. Give them something to think about. Or as my colleague Greg Kokel says, your job is to go out there and give them heaven. And one of the ways you do that is you find common ground and persuasively engage the culture rather than repel it. Give them something to think about. Leave the results to God. Let him finish the work. You just be a faithful ambassador. Thanks for letting me be with you. God bless you. I kept you a minute or two over. I apologize, sort of. Um, I'll stick around if any of you have questions. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I can do that. Father in heaven, thank you for each of these faithful ambassadors here at this college learning how to be your servants in the culture. I pray you'd empower them, equip them, and help them to make a good splash for your kingdom. For your son's sake, we pray. Amen. All right. <laughs>